1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today we are honored to have Dr. Max Haven with us. Uh, he's uh, an associate professor of English at Lakehead University in Canada. He's also a Canada researcher in the Radical Imagination. He's the author of several books, including Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital and uh, The Settling of Unpayable debts, published in 2020, and also Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against uh, Financialization, published in 2018. His most recent book is Palm Oil, The Grease of Empire, which was published in 2022 by Pluto Press. Uh, Max, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thanks so much.
1: Uh, it's customary to ask our guests to introduce themselves, tell us how they got interested in their field of studies. In your case, it's uh, English and also, I guess, a bit of history because you've written this book about uh, palm oil The Greece of Empire. Can you introduce yourself briefly and then tell us how the book came about? Sure. Uh, well,
0: um, I think it's important maybe to mention that I came to academe from a history in grassroots social activism in Canada um, and uh, a and anti-capitalist activism. And I came to academe as a place to try and answer some very difficult questions I had for myself about the the fate of those forms of activism in the early 2000s. Um, And somehow along the way, I fell into the field of cultural studies and critical theory and did my PhD on that. And then I have a relatively restless, uh, anti-disciplinary imagination which has good sides and bad sides. uh, And that's led me through a whole range of different projects. So in the past, I've done some social movement, uh, sociology. I've done some work sort of theorizing the imagination. Um, As you mentioned in your introduction, I've done some work on art and artists and art markets. And then uh, most recently before this book on palm oil, a book on the cultural politics of revenge, And uh, this project, uh, Palm Oil, The Grease of Empire, really came out of several years of teaching on the subject, uh, which gave me a sort of broad, somewhat eclectic uh, approach to a topic, uh, and you know, that goes in certain directions.
1: Uh, I guess I could tell by looking at the title of the books, right, Revenge Capitalism, uh, Art After Money, Money After Art. And uh, I'm just curious, can you tell us about the uh, that the research center? In, um, because you're also a researcher in radical imagination. Uh, is that an institute at Lakehead at University?
0: Yes. So uh, I'm the beneficiary of a program established by the Canadian government about 30 years now. now called the Canada Research Chairs Program and uh, when you are appointed a research chair as I am at Lakehead University which is in a quite remote location in Northwest Ontario in Canada uh, you're asked to establish a lab And under those auspices, I established the Reimagining Value Action Lab, which is a workshop for the radical imagination, social justice and decolonization. So we do primarily a lot of public events, a lot of public education around a whole variety of issues, some activist training, some film screenings, some uh, theory workshops, Uh, some print workshops and then we also organize events both in Thunder Bay where we're located uh, physically but also around the world and those have included uh, scholarly and artistic walking tours of different financial districts, organizing workshops and conferences and uh, right now we're developing a side of that lab that is developing board games to enliven the radical imagination and teach critical ideas fascinating
1: fascinating um so before reading your book i knew that you know palm oil was ubiquitous it was everywhere but you know having uh, read the book i even feel more guilty um (laughs) so can you talk about this ubiquity of 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 palm oil in our daily lives how did it become uh, a main part of our life because in any commodity we consume whether we use it or we eat it it is there
0: Yes. Well, by many estimates, including estimates that are propounded by the palm oil industry itself, palm oil can be found in 50% of products that you might buy at a supermarket. And uh, we're familiar with palm oil in processed foods, perhaps most notoriously in uh, the, the delectable chocolate hazelnut spread, Nutella, and other uh, processed foods of that nature, but it can also be found in pre-fried foods, uh, in foods like ramen noodles, which play a large role in my book, Um, and often as ingredients in a whole variety of other foods uh, used in small traces as preservatives or coagulants or um lubrication in various ways but beyond just the food um and of course it's also found in many many edible oils like margarines uh and um and uh, you know lard replacers fat replacers um vegetable oils but then it's also found in a huge number of uh cosmetics uh, many many cleaning products most shampoos and soaps Um, and beyond that it's also an ingredient in many different products that seem to have nothing to do with palm oil so it's sometimes used in inks and dyes and waxes and all sorts of other things you might find in a vast diversity of other products so ultimately the estimate is that it's in 50 percent of supermarket products but it's almost impossible to quantify and the reason it's there is quite simply because it's cheap Um, My book is a short, somewhat uh, provocative uh, introduction to palm oil and and a kind of unpacking of its many imperial characteristics. But the the best history book on palm oil is Jonathan Robbins' Oil Palm, A Global History. And in that book, he makes, I think, the very astute points that palm oil doesn't need to exist for global capitalism as we know it to exist in all its commodities. And yet it offers almost, you know, a vast, a vast number of different production processes, a cheap ingredient or a cheap um, lubricant uh, such that it can render uh, many products much cheaper to manufacture than if you had to use other products. And of course, as you know, bears mentioning that cheapness is born on the backs of workers and the environment around the world. So, so the, the only justification is just profit, in a way, for it to yeah, exist? Yeah, I mean, it is a miraculous product, I have to say. You know, it is, um, I think Michael Taussig on his in his book on palm oil uh, thinks about it as the philosopher's stone. It's a product that can be turned into a vast number of uh, end commodities. Um, and because it's so cheap and ubiquitous, it has led to a great deal of experimentation and development of, you know, highly refined modern palm oil into a variety of products. And so to give it its due, it is extremely versatile. Uh, It's unlike most vegetable oils, it's very high in saturated fats, it has a very unique chemical composition. Uh, It's very easy to break down uh, in the chemical uh, process, so that it can be turned into a vast diversity of products. So it does have some very unique characteristics. uh, But it's, it's, chief characteristic within capitalism is its cheapness.
1: Uh, yeah, we, we'll talk about that further down the in- interview because you, you have the expression fat of the poor um, and, and the economic consequences of using that on, on the global south. That's something we'll talk about soon. But can you tell us uh, where did it first come from? Because in your book you also mentioned that it had been used by uh, in, in West Africa for uh, centuries, but they used it more sustainably. Uh, so can you tell us where did it for, where it first came from or how, how it was used first in Africa
0: yeah well there are a number of uh, palm trees that can be um their fruits can be cultivated for oil but the type of oil palm that we today gain the huge amount of palm oil we use from is very specific and it has its origins in west africa and there it's been cultivated and harvested for millennia uh, by people in a vast diversity of cultures there uh, and used for a vast diversity of purposes so uh red or virgin palm oil is still a huge staple of the diet in West Africa and very beloved by both people within those countries and their global diasporas. Um, and in addition to being a very important part of the diet, it's also used in commodities, or, sorry, in, um, in uh, uh, cosmetics, sorry, uh, in cleaning products and soaps. Uh, And it also has many different cultural resonances and uh, spiritual resonances as well. So it's a very, very important part of West African culture. And one of the risks about writing a book on palm oil and studying palm oil and its contemporary expression is to not add further stigmatization to these more indigenous, sustainable um, West African uses of palm oil, uh, which have. You know, been stigmatized over the centuries uh, and and up to today, but instead to separate out those more traditional uh, uses and experiments with palm oil from the way it's become a global commodity of empire.
1: And when was it first discovered by Europeans, and how was it brought to Europe?
0: Well, Europeans well, had Europeans known about no palm oil since as early as the 1600s, perhaps earlier, uh, and they never really developed much of a taste for it or, or thought of many uses for it. It really became a commodity that began to be exported uh, to Europe uh, after the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade in the early 19th century. And it really had its origins in the fact that uh, the West African merchants of Liverpool and Plymouth and other, uh, especially British cities, uh, needed to find a new product to um, to trade, uh, to maintain their commerce on the West African shore as the trade in human flesh became uh, more difficult for them. Uh, And palm oil presented one of several commodities, uh, including ivory and later rubber, that was very appealing to them. And as cheap palm oil began to make its way into Europe, uh, Europeans developed a whole variety of uses uh, for it, uh, especially as the Industrial Revolution proceeded and as it was possible to manufacture things like soap and candles at an industrial scale. And also, uh, as the machines of the Industrial Revolution needed to be greased and palm oil, especially as it became cheaper and cheaper, uh, thanks to European imperialism in West Africa, uh, became a very uh, sought-after source for those kind of lubricants and ingredients. Uh,
1: uh, And in the book, you you talk about, um, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Edo Kingdom, the destruction of Edo kingdom and how it sort of illustrates that palm oil was central to uh, European um, colonial expansion. Can you talk about that episode as well? Yeah,
0: absolutely. absolutely. I mean, in the whole global history of palm oil, the invasion and destruction of the Edo kingdom, which is sometimes also known as the Benin empire uh, is relatively minor, but it's very significant for the story that I want to tell. And, uh, Uh, Just a quick detour to explain where this particular book came from. Um, In 2011, I was hired to teach at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. Um, And not being an art historian, I was hired in order to teach fine art students about capitalism and the histories of capitalism. And I kept looking for examples that would allow them to understand how deeply entangled capitalism is with our everyday lives but also with histories of imperialism, colonialism, the race-making product, project of those um, systems. And I came across the story of uh, what have come to be known as the Benin Bronzes, which are a set of really incredible uh, brass statues, ivory statues, uh, and uh, wall ornaments that were seized from the Edo Kingdom when the British Empire invaded in 1897. Um, and these allowed me to talk about the way that uh, artifacts from different civilizations appear in Western museums, uh, and the way that they change contexts when they're taken from their original location in the, the places of their origin, in this case, West Africa and the territories that are now known as Nigeria, and then taken to, for instance, the British Museum, which still houses the world's largest collection of the bronzes, Uh, they become, they no longer uh, appear, as they did in their original context, as spiritual artifacts or artifacts that tell the story of a kingdom. Uh, They become evidence, essentially, of Western supremacy and of white supremacy and of the power of empire, and they're put on display for that reason. So I was trying to explain this to students, uh, and that's where I realized that the reason why the British Empire invaded the Edo kingdom in 1897, was not actually to seize these artifacts. Uh, They hardly knew the artifacts existed, really. Uh, They were just booty of war. They, in fact, invaded the kingdom in order to seize its quite uh, capacious palm oil production capacity. The kingdom was uh, an empire and dominated lands around it uh, and used palm oil as a major part of its economy, as well as its sort of spiritual and cultural economy as well. And so the British Empire, essentially, uh, this was one of many ventures into the territories we now know as Nigeria, but also West Africa more broadly, following the Berlin Conference, where European powers carved up Africa into their various zones of influence, uh, where they stepped in and uh, either subjugated or destroyed an African kingdom in the name of um, you know, getting access to natural resources, and in this case, palm oil. And I should say not only natural resources, but also the, the labor power to process those natural resources into useful commodities.
1: Um, and so anyway, palm oil is, is is the legacy of an empire, and um, you just mentioned earlier the abolishment of slave trade and how the, 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 let's say the business with palm oil sort of took off after that in England. Uh, can you talk about how uh, the, the products in which palm oil was used were, 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 were uh, let's say, in a way featured as an ethical choice to use and in which uh, stereotypical, let's say, racial tropes and also tropes of white supremacy were manifested, like soap, for example?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, well, soap is so- one of the certainly one of the most famous examples because uh, soap uh, in the 19th century was largely made up of either palm oil or olive oil. And palm oil throughout the 19th century got cheaper and cheaper, both as the labor in Africa was devalued and also as new transportation technologies made it uh, simpler to refine the oil and transport it back to Europe. Um, a, n- a number of other commodities that emerged were uh, machine oils, uh, which you know were used to grease the machines of the Industrial Revolution, railways, also steamships, such as the steamship that brought the British soldiers up the river to the Edo Kingdom, uh, and also candles. Uh, And also palm oil was quite essential in the 19th century and into the 20th century as part of manufacturing tinned cans that were uh, important for packaging foods that could be sent on long ship voyages. And also bringing foods from across the empire back to the metropole for consumption there. And in each of those cases... um, you know, new needs needed to be manufactured by the dawning age of industrial and consumer capitalism. So the ways in which people cleaned themselves uh, transformed over the 19th century so that soap went from being a luxury to a commodity that everyone needed to have. You know, um, Lever, the Lever Company, which is the, the um, antecedent of today's Unilever, Uh, was really central to promoting these notions of cleanliness that orbited and were advertised in terms of white supremacy and duty to empire, specifically uh, advertised to middle class women as sort of their duty to preserve the hygiene of the white race and to, um, you know, ensure that they were doing their part to support uh, king and country. This has been very well sort of documented and analyzed by Anne McClintock and her excellent uh, and now quite classic book, Imperial Leather. But this was the case with other palm oil commodities as well. Um, Price's Candles, which is a brand that's still sold today, in fact, uh, advertised its product, which became largely uh, made out of uh, palm oil by the end of the 19th century as a form of ethical consumerism so european consumers and particularly the middle classes were exhorted to purchase prices candles as a way of supporting what was presented as a beneficial and uplifting um in uh, business in west africa west africa really until the 20th century and you know arguably still today within the racist European imagination, was presented, of course, as this sort of dark-hearted continent where all sorts of terrible things continued, including human sacrifice and the perpetuation of slavery. In fact, the British invaded the Edo kingdom we were speaking about before, largely on the pretext that its ruling class practiced human sacrifice in some form. Uh, Price's Candles uh, advertised itself suggesting that the sort of... um, the persuasive power of gentle commerce would convince the sort of uh, inhabitants of the dark continent to give up their savage ways and adopt uh, more uh, beneficial forms of commerce and learn the value of hard work. There was this whole notion that Europeans through their consumer choices could do a kind of missionary work uh, through consumer capitalism. And in the book, I argue that these kind of racist colonial tropes Though they've changed form, they they persist to this day in a lot of the discourse around palm oil, both from the industry itself, which is increasingly suggesting that palm oil is a sustainable, eco friendly, and worker friendly commodity, which it is in fact not, uh, but also in many of the groups that are opposed to palm oil, including large environmental NGOs who have quite robust and expansive. Uh, advertising and marketing campaigns against palm oil, but still tend to approach the European or the North American uh, normatively white consumer as a beneficial actor who essentially votes for human rights through their pocketbook.
1: Uh, And I think even with the consumption of tea in England in, in, in the 19th century, there were more or less a similar story as well. It was marketed as uh, something British and it was marketed as something that would benefit people of other nations if you consume it. But um, let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about industrial, uh, you, you've talked about industrial revolution, but something that doesn't really get much talked about is the role of prime oil in, uh, in militarism, in weapon industry. And that's something I've also approached in the book especially the use of palm oil in the Second World War. Um, can you talk a little about that, please?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things about studying this book was really trying to locate palm oil, not only within the commercial and capitalist sides of the empire, but also the military sides of the empire as well. So in the late 19th century, before there were widely available mineral oils and, um, and oils derived from uh, petroleum, um, and and uh, highly refined coal products, European empires were really struggling with one another to find a universal gun oil that would be able to preserve and lubricate uh, weaponry in especially the tropical regions where increasingly imperial troops were being deployed. It's very easy for European-made guns to jam or to rust or to otherwise uh, have problems in those in those theaters of imperial warfare. So I don't have um, hard evidence that palm oil was ever used precisely for that, but certainly the European hunger and for different types of oils and experimentation with oils was very much driven by the needs of the military. There are many other, though, uh, weaponized uses of palm oil um, in the late 19th and early 20th century. One of them is, as I mentioned, um, the way it could grease the wheels of things like steamships. And it's, it's difficult to underestimate the, the military importance of steamships that could force their way up rivers. I mean, probably the most famously in the first Opium Wars, uh, it was used to open up the then port of Canton. Uh, but in many other uh, theaters as well, including the invasion of the Benin Kingdom that's so central to the story that I'm telling, Um, Beyond that, though, uh, palm oil was a very cheap source of glycerin, and glycerin is one of the most important uh, components or one of the key components of dynamite, uh, as sort of developed by Alfred Noble and his factory in Hamburg. When mixed with uh, explosives, it, it can create a very potent and stable explosive. Uh, and so really, the history of warfare in the 20th century has the shadow of palm oil cast over it. And not only in the sense that, you know, dynamite was used for aerial bombardments and, uh, you know, bombings, but also in the sense that uh, the kind of weaponization of infrastructure as well. Palm oil was essential to, of course, the greasing of locomotives and railways that could cut into the interior and allow the extraction of resources and the movement of troops into the interior of colonized um, countries and territories. But uh, dynamite could also be used to blast through rock to and level ground in order to uh, allow those railway tracks to be laid as well. And later on, uh, highways and other forms of infrastructure. It also permitted the uh, blasting deeper of mines, and uh, of course, at huge expense, as many people who were rendered disposable by the system were were killed uh, in laying or, or in laying those explosives, or were caught up in those explosives as well. And then, in the Second World War, as as you alluded to, um, napalm became part of the weapon that still bears its name, which is napalm, uh, which was developed at Harvard Laboratory as a weapon of war in the Second World War. By the mid, by sort of the later part of the 20th century, it was used extensively in counterinsurgency warfare, specifically against um, colonized people who were waging wars of national liberation or seeking uh, to liberate themselves from the structures of colonial or neocolonial capitalism. And Napalm become sort of um, synonymous with the kind of counterinsurgent warfare that not only targeted uh, combatants, but also civilians and ecosystems and that kind of triangular relationship between insurgents, uh, ecosystems and people. Uh Now, by the time of the Vietnam War, where napalm became, of course, very famous, and that led to uh, very important boycotts of companies like DuPont in the United States, by that time, uh, palm oil was no longer being used in napalm production. They had replaced it with a a plastic derivative, but the name still bears the trace. And ultimately, my book is an attempt to sort of uh, pull all of these threads and these traces to kind of generate a larger picture of napal, uh, sorry, of sorry palm oil's influence uh, over the world that we all share. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
1: And, and speaking of war, even um, the war between Ukraine and Russia is also exacerbating the situation. It might be increasing the demand for palm oil. Does it play any
0: role in that? Yeah. I mean, at the very beginning of that conflict uh, in 2022... Um, there was a massive spike in the price of uh, food oils around the world, including palm oil, because between them, Russia and Ukraine produce about 80% of the world's sunflower oil. So as markets got spooked by the war and worried that that, um, um, Sunflower oil wouldn't reach market or it would reach market at much higher price or not in the quantities that were needed. There was a kind of speculative rush to leap on other competitor oils, including palm oil. And that drove up the the cost of palm oil quite considerably with a number of different uh, very dangerous consequences. I mean, for people who depend on palm oil for nutrition, which is a considerable percentage of the world's poorest people, as it is one of the world's uh most uh cheapest oils uh it meant that one of the staples of their diet was now put increasingly out of reach but it also raised fears especially among environmentalists that there would be repeat of what happened in the early 2000s when the eu and the united states demanded that a certain percentage of uh, petroleum products be derived from biofuels and this Uh, policy, which was intended to help um, stave off climate change, actually led to one of the most destructive um, knock-on effects in the history of climate change recently. The rising cost of biofuels meant that it incentivized essentially uh, both governments Uh, entrepreneurs, agribusiness, and also organized crime to start slicing down huge swaths of tropical rainforests to plant palm oil plantations in order to uh, generate um, biofuels. So there was a concern that the war in um, in Ukraine would also lead to uh, jack up the price of palm oil and lead to that kind of response from markets to exacerbate ecological destruction. But the jury's still out on if that'll happen and the um, the price of palm oil has more or less um, stabilized. But it just, I think, goes to show how global markets in this age of sort of decentralized capitalist empire that we live in uh, have these often catastrophic effects where some sort of um, volatility in one part of the world can lead to, you know, the destruction of millions of acres of rainforest in another part of the world.
1: And uh, but let's talk about commodity fetishism and how it disguises the harmful effects of palm oil. You you did talk about you alluded to that at the beginning of the interview that there are products that are uh, that are marketed as being eco-friendly but as a matter of fact they aren't and it, it could be traced back somehow to i mean parallels of that could be traced back to the marketing of soap for example as an uh, as as an ethical choice can you talk about that as well
0: yeah absolutely i think there's sort of two types of commodity fetishism here uh and we could speak about like maybe what marxists might call like a vulgar commodity fetishism on one hand and then uh more theoretically rich notion of commodity fetishism as well on the one hand you have what we might call from a theoretical perspective vulgar commodity fetishism which is the way that we become attached to certain commodities and how those commodities we we use our purchasing of certain commodities as a kind of um proxy for our form of self-expression we express ourselves through our commodity purchases And so uh, over the last 15 years, especially, there's been a huge uh, rush into sort of greenwashed products, including from the palm oil industry that advertise themselves as eco-friendly, as sustainable, as good for the earth, as the right choice for a thoughtful, ethical consumer. And uh, this has been especially the case with palm oil because for various reasons we might be able to get into a little bit later in our discussion, the palm oil industry has come under uh, quite specific and quite unique scrutiny in world markets, um, especially in Europe, but also in North America and uh, other, uh, you know, colonizing countries uh, or countries that are the beneficiaries of our neocolonial world system. As a result... Uh, often many of the products that you might see in a grocery store that advertise themselves as eco-friendly are actually palm oil products. This is partly thanks to an industry group uh, or a, a roundtable with industry, government, and some environmental NGOs called the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, which certifies certain palm oil products as sustainable. And then that's used by companies, including Unilever, who was mentioned earlier, which is still one of the world's largest um users of palm oil uh, as a way to sell products to eco-conscious consumers. And as the climate crisis gets worse and people are more and more afraid of the consequences and want more and more in a genuine way, I think, to be able to do something, um, those consumer choices become more and more appealing. This is part of the argument of the book, is that to the extent that we cede to capitalism the idea that our political and social agency is limited to consumer choices, we're increasingly beholden to these, you know, essentially uh, lies from the industry that insist to us that, you know, we should buy their product and therefore help save the earth. Now, that's the sort of more vulgar commodity fetishism that kind of I'm exploring in the book. The deeper side of Type of commodity fetishism really takes up that term again from from Karl Marx um, to look at the way that every time we buy a commodity and we're we're engaging in a kind of process of uh, forgetting we forget that that commodity is the product of human labor uh, in this case and I think this is something Marx didn't speak about enough although there are many Marxists recently have have opened up our eyes to how you could think about it this way. It's a collaboration between human labor and non-human labor as well. Um, in this case, a collaboration between humans and a very particular plant, the oil palm. Uh, ultimately, what the commo- this kind of deeper notion of commodity fetishism would force us to contend with is that palm oil is the product of the same system that entraps and has created each of us. Uh, And in Tausig's book on on palm oil, he makes the very uh, important point that we are all essentially now, as a global species, made partly of palm oil. I mean, almost all of us have at some point metabolized palm oil to reproduce our body. We've used it on our skin. We use it in our homes. It is part of us. We are, and we are part of the world that palm oil built. And palm oil is the result of the world that we, as an interconnected global species, have built. The deeper kind of notion of commodity fetishism is that we forget this. Uh, in buying the the product that's labeled as sustainable, we forget our place within a global system of capitalism that fundamentally shapes how we cooperate as a global species and also how we cooperate with other species. And that, I mean, my book is not intended to be a particularly hopeful or optimistic book, but what optimism is in there is that perhaps through writing and thinking together and learning together, we can do a kind of remembering that um that reverses commodity fetishism in some way and allows us to perhaps better imagine forms of solidarity that might move us towards more peaceful and sustainable futures
1: um i I wanted to ask you about these two notions uh, uh notions of forgetting and sacrifices that you talk about in the book and you just talked about forgetting the thing is that you're right many of us uh consume palm oil and we only think of the environmental impacts but there's a, but uh, there's another layer of that as well because in uh, in the consumption of palm oil there's also the forced acquisition of land uh, the customary uh, land rights of the indigenous people have been seized by force by the palm industry palm oil industry. Uh, so maybe it's also a chance to talk about the entanglement. It's And it's not easy to get rid of palm oil, as you mentioned. It's a very complicated process. It's, it has become us. And maybe it's a good, cha- good, good time to talk about the entanglement of palm oil and cheap labor and how it affects also the indigenous communities where palm oil comes from.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, palm oil only grows in tropical zones. Uh, and... While it was originally extracted primarily from West Africa in the 19th century, by the end of that century, it had begun to move around the world, thanks to European imperialism. So the Dutch uh, brought it to Indonesia, the English brought it to what's now Malaysia. Uh, It was imported in quantity to Latin America. And in all of these tropical regions, uh, the oil palm thrived in damaged landscapes. Now, that's partly because of its kind of ecological niche. Uh, It grows quite well, especially in burned landscapes. But we can also take that metaphorically as well. It's not coincidental that Indonesia and Malaysia, countries like Colombia or Honduras, are all countries that have seen horrific forms of colonial or neocolonial violence. Um, And this violence has not only detached people from their land base, uh, it's also created massive pools of migrant labor. Uh, And that has been really central to the history of the palm oil industry, because uh, oil palms are difficult to cultivate, and the cultivation and even the refining of palm oil, or at least in its initial stages, is very difficult to automate. So it requires a fair amount of human labor. Uh, And that uh, is rendered cheap if you have populations who've been detached from their means of uh, subsistence, who no longer have the means to feed themselves, who have been severed from their land base. Uh, As the palm oil industry has expanded, thanks to global demand for the product, it's encouraged governments, but not only governments, also companies and organized crime syndicates to expand further and further into the hinterland Taking land from indigenous people, uh, or from peasants uh, in those hinterlands, uh, often the line in many of these places between government companies and organized crime is uh, essentially immaterial. I mean, it's they're they're the same actors, or they're working in concert. And as a result, what we've seen over the last decades is uh, palm oil as a kind of weapon against indigenous people and against sustainable livelihoods. That has the effect not only of seizing the land, but also rendering our populations as disposable, as sacrificial, and as uh, cheapened, as sources of cheapened labor as well.
1: And... uh... Talking about the impacts of palm oil industry on the indigenous communities, is one justification that sometimes is used by, uh, by big corporates is that it's true that it's doing some damage to the environment, but it's also providing the indigenous communities with a means of uh, sustenance and, and it's providing them with some income. So have indigenous communities uh, ever benefited from, uh, from, from palm oil industry?
0: Some indigenous people have benefited from the palm oil industry and some West Africans benefited from the palm oil industry in the 19th century and indigenous people around the world. Some benefit from massive extraction projects. Uh, You know, there's a question about like if the fact that a few indigenous people make money and can now participate on some level in a global economy is what's in the interests of indigenous people generally, either within their particular communities or more broadly as a category. Uh, I think generally all capitalist industries that are destructive in this way have always, uh, you know, since the 18th century or the, the 17th century, but certainly in the 19th and the 20th century claimed that, you know, they're giving people jobs. But the question is, uh, you know, is that what is that what indigenous people wanted or did they want their land? And why now do they need jobs? They need jobs in order to earn wages. They need wages in order to buy products that they can no longer produce for themselves through their relationship with the land. So ultimately, what we're seeing here is a process of coercive transformation uh, that indigenous people in the vast majority of cases never got to choose or were only able to choose under... Um, you know uh, conditions of incredible pressure, um, and now you know as the right hand has crushed uh, whole lifeways and committed what can only be described on a global scale as massive, uh, multi-dimensional <laughs> genocide, then the left hand of the sort of corporate uh, capitalist empire offers a, a pittance of wages uh, in return the vast majority of the time, with the exception of some indigenous elites, those wages are only enough to keep people alive from day to day, rather than allowing them to reclaim some sort of autonomy uh, within their communities or ecosystems. And the ecosystems in many cases are uh, fundamentally and forever changed.
1: I guess you're right. And as you mentioned, it's mainly, if with indigenous, it's mainly the elites or the politicians. I guess it's even the case in Indonesia. Who have benefited from the industry, but uh, the vast majority of other people have really been at loss. And I, I know it's a kind of difficult question to answer, but what is the solution? What can we as consumers do, or is there anything that we as consumers do? Because I'm aware that right now that I'm speaking to, you, I'm drinking water out of a recycled bottle, but that might be palm oil. I'm taking notes as you're speaking. I'm just in mesh; it has become a part of me. What is the way out? Or what is, what is it that we as individuals can do?
0: I mean, unfortunately, I don't think there's much we as individuals can do. Um, this is, and part of the argument of the book, is that Palm Oil now presents itself as one of many global problems we face as a species, as a very unique species on the face of the Earth. Uh, we as humans have fundamentally transformed the planet, uh, in, not just in the... For our benefit but for the benefit of a very very small percentage of us and we've done so through a system of capitalism that makes it very hard to make collective decisions outside of purchasing but the irony is that the more we fall into the trap of thinking that our only power is through commodity actions through buying and selling we seed our imagination, and we cede our collective power to the very system that's creating the destruction in the first place, which is to say this kind of neo-colonial global capitalism we're a part of. So in the book, I'm quite skeptical towards individualist solutions, although I certainly understand why they would be attractive to our imaginations. I think, you know, we are a storytelling species and we tend to tell our stories about the actions of individuals and their consequences. And so our imaginations always gravitate towards that. But I think what we desperately need are forms of anti-capitalist storytelling that allow us to recognize a different we, a different us, a different kind of agency uh, that allow us to come to grips with what it means to be a global species that has to make very difficult uh, choices. And so with that in mind, that's sort of my first my first answer to this very complex question. The second answer to this very complex question is, I think wherever we begin, we need to start with the voices and the knowledge and the desires of the most affected people. And in the end of my book, uh, and in every interview I do, I try and give a shout out to the Transnational Palm Oil Labor Solidarity Network, uh, which is a really wonderful group of activists, journalists, researchers, indigenous groups, Uh, really focused on how palm oil laborers uh, and workers affected by the palm oil sector can stand together and make demands. And, And last year, they developed a really fascinating blueprint for a just transition within the industry. And what was suggested in that blueprint is to give the land back to the people who are affected by palm oil plantations uh, and the palm oil industry, and let them begin and support them to develop sustainable frameworks uh, for land use that might uh, work with indigenous forms of knowledge uh, and also be integrated into a much more humane global economy, a global economy built on notions of solidarity rather than notions of exploitation. In that report, they sort of suggest that uh, displaced workers, uh, if they had the land, could resettle. Indigenous people, if they had the land, could reimagine what the relationship to the land would be. And maybe oil, <coughs> excuse me, <laughs> sorry, uh, and maybe oil palms would be one part of a diverse um sort of set of land uses and maybe the export of some palm oil would be a part of the way that those communities would opt to use the land i mean as we were talking about at the beginning of this discussion the oil palm has been cultivated by west africans for millennia and has many 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 purposes and uses and there are many elements of palm oil perhaps not refined bleach deodorized palm oil but virgin palm oil that can be very useful in a variety of products. Uh, So in this case, perhaps the oil palm would remain as one among many different kinds of non-human species that humans might collaborate with, but certainly not on the level of sort of industrial ecocidal production that defines the industry today. Now, this is the third part of this answer. Uh, If that were to happen, and it will take a huge amount of global solidarity for that to happen, Uh, consumers in the global north uh, and countries that tend to import palm oil would need to look elsewhere for either edible oil products or uh, some substance that could do the work that palm oil does in so many of the products I listed earlier, that 50% of supermarket products, as well as products that are used in industrial manufacturing and many other applications. You know, for... Indigenous people and workers to be able to reclaim the lands that palm oil plantations are would require an uh, incredible magnitude of global solidarity. It would require that all of us recognize that we are all being forced to work within a system that is killing us and killing the planet. And it would require that we be able to bring to bear on a global scale incredible amounts of pressure, not only on particular companies like, say, Unilever. To do this or that, or be sustainable or not sustainable in their product manufacturing and sourcing, it would require really the seizure of social wealth by the global working class. Um, And I think that's a very important goal. You know, I don't think there's a solution to the palm oil problem in some ways that doesn't begin with us recognizing that all of us, not just people who are living on palm oil plantations, Uh, all of us have been stripped from our means of subsisting and living in good relation to the earth. So part of what we need is a change in our focus away from sort of consumer activism and towards recognizing that, you know, again, that kind of deeper notion of commodity fetishism, that beyond each common commodity is not only the incredible violence that has created the system, but the incredible potential of our species to cooperate differently and for us to reclaim the means of living together and living with other species. But that would also mean for those of us who are in palm oil consuming countries that we need to relocalize a lot of production of, for instance, oils, you know, in, uh, in India, uh, palm oil is quickly becoming the most popular cooking oil. And it's especially, as I put it in the book, the the fat of the world's poor. It's the fat of consumers who can afford nothing else because they're too poor to afford other kinds of oil. It's also the fat of people who've been displaced from their lands and can no longer produce the oil, the edible oil, which is an important part of human diets uh, that their ancestors produced. And so it would require all of us rethinking how we could come into greater communion with the land where we're situated and Produce many, not all, but many of the things we need locally in sustainable, uh, you know, permaculture style fashions. Now, that would mean, in very practical terms, that the kind of purchasing power that people in the neocolonial countries or countries that benefit from neocolonialism have become used to, we would have to give up a lot of what we now consider to be luxuries. but that, in some ways, is perhaps a small price to pay for what's on the other side of it, which is um, a new form of communion with other humans and, uh, and the more-than-human world, and in some way, uh, a way of, at least on the horizon, being able to imagine an ethical relationship with the Earth and other humans.
1: Uh, Max, thank you very much for this conversation, but before we end the interview, is there any other project or monograph you're currently working on?
0: Uh, I'm working on many ideas right now, but I've taken a little bit of a break. Uh, Right now, I'm working very hard on developing a board games lab, uh, as I was mentioning at the beginning, where we're trying to create a board and card games to teach topics of globalization, social justice, decolonization, and the radical imagination. Uh, I'm also perennially fascinated with and writing a book on scams and the role of scams in capitalism.
1: Thank you very much. I absolutely enjoyed this conversation. I strongly recommend our listeners to pick up the book. It's an easy book to read, uh, not too long, and it's very, very informative. Thank you very much, uh, Max.
0: Thank you so much.